All right, all right. If you have your Bibles, grab them first. Corinthians chapter 11. Please stand out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Good morning. Our reading today is from 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you came together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, I and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you not despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim that the Lord's death, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, last week we made it through uh, head coverings and, and all that, and this week we jump into the Lord's Supper. You know, uh, we, as we've read throughout 1 Corinthians, we've seen all these divisions and, uh, in the church, and, and they, they continue here. You know, it's amazing how intense divisions can be in, in our world. You know, we see them all over the place, politics. Uh, but one of the fascinating places that we see it is in sports. Uh, it, it's, a, it's amazing how uh, you get a Browns fan and a Bengals fan in a room and how they'll go at each other. It's amazing how if the, if the Bengals were in the Super Bowl, the Browns fan is pulling for whoever the Bengals are playing against. doesn't matter who it is. Uh, uh, I've learned recently uh, how, how deep 
the, you know, the, the rivalry goes between Ohio State and Michigan. Uh, as Michigan, uh, you know, won this game that was really important pretty recently. Uh, and Ohio State fans uh, would, would, would not pull for Michigan uh, to win that championship no matter what. And if you suggest that they should, they might cut you. Uh, I know people who will refuse to watch a game with some other, uh, with some other person who's a fan of the other team uh, because of they may make comments, they'll get into a fight. My mom is one of these people. My mom cannot watch a football game with somebody who will say anything negative about any of the particular players that she particularly loves at that particular season. Uh, a couple years ago, she came down and we went to watch the Panthers play the Bengals uh, uh, here. And uh, uh, there was a guy sitting behind us who uh, every time the, Bing- the uh, Panthers would get a flag, he would say, you can't do that, Carolina. You can't do that. And my mom's blood was boiling. I mean, her face was getting red. She was getting angry. Uh, and she, she's like, if you weren't here with me, I'd have turned around and said something. Um, and when we left, she said, away games are not for me. Um, <laughs> um, and it, it, even then, just a couple weeks ago, uh, the Panthers owner, this billionaire owner, is in his posh, fancy press box. And some Jaguars fan out in front of them says something uh, to him, to which he throws a drink at him and then gets fined $300,000 for doing so. Uh, you know, sports divisions can, can go deep. You know, they, can, they, they run deep. When well, Corinth, there are all these divisions, uh, but they're, 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 they're different than a lot of things we fight about today. They're, they're theological divisions, cultural, pagan, moral divisions, class divisions. And these disagreements uh, that they had between their older cultures or whatever were causing these deep fissures and dis- divisions uh, amongst them. You see, there's always diversity in the church. Diversity of age, background, diversity of class or race, diversity of preferences, of style, of even personal convictions, even differences over political approaches. And Jesus' vision for the church is not uniformity. Let's all believe and think exactly the same way all the time. But rather, in everything, unity, which overcomes disagreements and overcomes secondary issues. And so let's be clear, there can be issues that are big enough, right, to divide us. If you deny the resurrection of Jesus, if you deny the virgin birth, if you want to baptize babies, we're probably not going to be able to have that sort of deep unity in the church. But if you're a Browns fan, for whatever reason, if you think Christians shouldn't drink alcohol, If you think the end times looks exactly like uh, the Left Behind movies, or even if you think we should only sing hymns all the time, we can disagree about those things and have a deep abiding unity. You know, my grandparents did not understand uh, the music that I listened to. My grandparents did not understand why I had holes in my jeans. You paid more for those? You paid more for less. I could, they, my grandpa would always say, I could put those holes in there for you, you know. They did not understand the slang that I used. And now I really don't understand the slang that the youth use. It is wild. My grandparents did not understand the priorities that I had. 
but yet they loved me fiercely, cared for me, served me, pushed me, supported me, proud of me, encouraged me. Even though we didn't always agree or didn't always understand one another, they were there and we had deep, tight unity. And the church should be the same way. We may not always agree on everything, but we are family. And these are my brothers and sisters. And while I think uh, you might be wrong, you might think I might be wrong about something, I will go to the moon and back for you and you should for me. And we never let these small issues get between us. You see, the one place in all walks of life that should be marked by an unflinching unity on display for the world to see is in the church. And that should be particularly on display when we take the Lord's Supper. Sadly, the church at Corinth was exactly the opposite. Uh, Taking the Lord's Supper should have functioned as this unifying moment, this coming together at the Lord's table to take the Lord's Supper, and instead, the Lord's Supper highlighted and exasperated the divisions that already existed. Look at verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Hold on to that part. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So here's what's going on. In the early church, they did not have big, nice, fancy church buildings like we do today to meet in. So where did they meet? Well, they obviously weren't going to go down to some pagan temple. No, they had to meet in each other's homes. They were meeting in houses. But as the church was growing and getting bigger and bigger, they needed houses that were bigger and bigger. So they couldn't just go to kind of an average person's home that would fit five people. And so they needed to meet in whoever had the largest home, which meant they went to the most wealthiest person's house. So now they are gathering at this rich person's house. Every Sunday they've, they've come and they would have a meal together. And as part of that larger meal, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper as they ate together. Well, the rich people didn't really work labor hourly kind of jobs. And so on Sundays, they would just be at the house most of the day, hanging out, eating, sipping on wine, uh, doing their thing. And later on that day, the poor people who have been working all day, they start showing up. And as they start showing up at that time, all of the seating in the big room was gone because all the rich people have been hanging out there all day. And so they would have to kind of get the secondary room and kind of be segregated off by themselves. So it was like they had two church campuses, one for rich people and one for poor people. And by the time the poor people got there, They're hungry, they've been working all day, they're hungry, but all the food was gone because the rich people had been snacking all day long. And the rich people were basically drunk because they had been sipping on wine all day long. And so you got one group that's poor and hungry, and another group that's rich and drunk, and they're separated, literally, physically. And so when it comes time to take the Lord's Supper, they're separated physically, separated emotionally, because they're angry and bitter at one another. The poor people are like, why can't you guys just wait? And why can't you save us some food? Why can't you make some room, scoot over and get in and make some room for us? And the rich people are looking down their noses at the poor people. Like, why couldn't you guys get here earlier? Why don't you take the day off? Why don't you bring some food with you? And not really wanting to be associated with those poor people. 
And so they take the Lord's Supper, literally divided. Instead of a picture of unity, instead of a meal of coming together that brings them closer, it exasperates their divisions. Paul has heard this, uh, this report, and he is flabbergasted. I love in that verse where he just stops and goes, what? He's flabbergasted. He's like, I cannot believe this. And so this whole section is Paul's response, really his rebuke of them. And he's basically saying, if you understood the significance of the Lord's Supper, what it is, then you would have never acted like this. And so then he says, now let me explain to you what, it, what is happening when we take the wine and the bread. What is this all about? What's going on? He wants to teach them in order to correct their behavior. And so what I want us to do is to see, uh, see, see the things that the Lord's Supper is. Really, three th- two things that the Lord's Supper is and one thing that is required of us before we take it. So two things that it is, one thing that's required of us before we take it. All right, so verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The first thing I want you to see is that the Lord's Supper is a proclamation. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation. When we think of proclamation, we typically think about uh, someone speaking, like what I'm doing right now. This is a proclaiming something. But Paul is, is reminding us that the images and the symbols and in this Lord's Supper is in itself a proclamation. The bread and the wine are visual aids. They are things that you can see and smell and taste and that serves as a proclamation of the Lord's death. Sometimes words can only take us so far. You know, we, we hear that Jesus loves us. We hear people speak of his death. But sometimes the, the reality of that gospel can seem distant and far off. Sometimes it can feel so untrue of us. And so God in his kindness has given us something to hold on to. Something to break between our teeth. Something to remind us of blood in its color. So that as we see these physical reminders, as we taste them and smell them and touch them, the gospel would be proclaimed to us, not just in word, but in the images and the senses of our bodies so that the gospel might go deeper into our hearts. So this meal is a proclamation, not just in word, but in image. And four quick things about what this kind of, what what proclamation is going on here. So A, it proclaims the necessity of the death of Christ. The Lord's Supper proclaims the necessity of the death of Christ. Paul reminds us that it was the night before Jesus was betrayed and killed that he held up the bread and said, This is my body broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. If salvation could have been accomplished any other way, if there was any other route, any other possibility, any other way at all, then Jesus would not have come at all or he would not have come to die a sinner's death in our place. If, for example, there were multiple ways to heaven, if, for example, you could be a good enough person, if you could worship or follow some other religious path, then Jesus would not have needed to come and die. Because literally, hours after having the Lord's Supper, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying this. Father, if it is possible that there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there's another possible route, let this cup from pass from me. Let's find a different way than the cross if there's another way. 
But there is no other way. There is no other path. There is nothing. This is the only way to be reconciled to God, to escape hell, and to be joined to the family of God forever. And so we take this Lord's Supper proclaiming to us and to the world that there is one way to God. And because of that, Jesus had to die. His body had to be broken. His blood had to be poured out. B, it proclaims salvation is for you personally. It's for you. You know, particularly in America, like I think no other place in the world in history, there can be this assumption that just by living and being a moral person, by, by de facto that you're an American, that you are a Christian. But that can't be further from the truth. Not only is it a necessity that Christ died, but it is a necessity that he died for you particularly. Paul reminds us that Jesus said of the bread that this is my body broken for you. Which means you need it. You need his body broken. You need this salvation, this gift. You are not above it. But it also means that this salvation is for you and you're not beyond it. You're not above it, but you're also not beyond it. You know, sometimes we can think that our sins are so big, that our past is so vile and tainted. That our life is so messed up, that we're so evil, that our sins are so numerous, that the death of God wasn't enough to forgive you. And how ludicrous is that? Because his body was broken, not just for your neighbor, but for you particularly. Taking this supper is a reminder that there is a place at the Lord's table for you. That you might be the biggest sinner in the world, but there is room enough still for you at his table because his body was broken. You know, it reminds me of that uh, intro scene, uh, one of the beginning scenes in Forrest Gump. When Forrest, you know, he's got those leg braces and he goes to, to get on the bus to go to school. And every time he tries to sit down, one of the kids slide in and what do they say? Seat's taken. Seat, you know, like the most redneck voice ever. Seat's taken. Seat's taken, right? He, he's going and, and you think there for a minute, there's not going to be any place for him. There's no place for a weirdo with leg braces like Forrest Gump to sit on this bus. Seat's taken, seat's taken, seat's taken. No room for you here until he hears the voice of an angel. Or what he thinks is an angel, it's Jenny. And she says, you can sit with me. There's room for you here. You can sit here. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of the voice of Jesus that he has saved a seat at the table for you. See, it proclaims Christ's future victory. It proclaims his future victory. He says in verse, twi- verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. The Lord's Supper looks back at the cross, but it also looks forward to the culmination of Christ's victory on the cross. You see, we hold to this kind of theological concept. We call it the already, not yet. Already, not yet. That is, Christ's victory is already accomplished, not yet fully realized. It is already true. He has victory. He has won. The battle is over. He's won, but it's not fully realized. It's it's here. It's already, but not yet in full. Christ's victory over sin and death, the curse of sin, uh, uh, the curse of sickness, the curse of poverty, the curse of strife and envy and, and, and lust and death, all of the, the curse of sin has been defeated on a cross 2,000 years ago, but yet still we die. Yet still there's poverty. Yet still people are slaves to sin. 
because we are awaiting the full effect of this victory to come with the returning of Christ. You see, when Jesus died, it looked as if all hope was lost, right? It looked like death had won. And it looked as if there was no hope in the world. But three days later, the resurrection came and proved that Jesus had actually won. But there was kind of this three-day waiting period. We don't know what's going on. That everything that he did could have been untrue, could have been false. He could have been a liar. But similar to that, similar between the time between the the cross and the resurrection, we live in this sort of in-between time. Not between the cross and the resurrection, but between the ascension and the return. But there's one difference. The disciples had no idea what was coming, but we do. The disciples had no idea the resurrection was coming, though Jesus had told them plenty of times. And so they waited for three days without hope, freaking out. We wait not between the cross and the resurrection, but between the ascension of Jesus and the return. The angel said he will come back just like he left. And so we wait here knowing that he's coming back, that he's going to finish what he started. That he's going to see it through and that he's going to take his victory and apply it to the entire world and make all things new again. And so we are here eating this meal, looking back at the cross and looking forward to its final fulfillment where God makes all things new. And so we proclaim this victory as already but not yet fully realized. D. It proclaims the unity of sinners saved by grace. It proclaims, this meal proclaims the unity of sinners saved by grace. One of the the great things the Lord's Supper should produce in us is humility and unity. You see, we all together take this meal. And there is no one here who somehow got to Christ through another way or another path. No, we all come as broken vessels. We all come as, as, as filthy rags. We all come as uh, contributing nothing to our salvation other than the sin that needed forgiving. And therefore, we're all in the same boat, sinners saved by grace. And that's why there is this beauty in all of us taking this meal at the same time, that it's not just this individual expression of my relationship with God. It is this communal event whereby we acknowledge we are one body, one body full of sinners, One body full of sinners saved by a majestic grace. And it should humble us that there is no place for pride or arrogance at the Lord's table. No, all of us got here, uh, not here by our own merit or our own determination or our own ability. We are all here by the sheer mercy and grace of God. And because the Lord's Supper proclaims all of that truth, it puts us on a level playing field. And because of that, there is no room for division in the church and particularly at the king's table. So we do not put all the rich people on one side and all the poor people on the other side. We don't put all the Democrats on one side and all the Republicans on the other side. We don't put all the pretty people on one side and all the ugly people on the other side. Or whatever other division you can come up with. We don't put all the white people on one side and all the black people on the other side. There's no room for division. You know, if you've seen the movie to the Titanic, you know that the whole boat was divided by, by classism, right? You had the, the rich, wealthy, uh, high-class people on top, and all the poor people were on the lower deck. And all the rich, classy people got all these amenities and food, nice food and all this stuff. And all the poor people on the lower decks got the slop and the leftovers and kind of the grunginess. 
But after the, after the, the boat sank and people were wondering if their loved one had survived, they went to the New York Times who had published an article, a column, with a list of the people who had survived and died. And, and, and it wasn't a list that said rich people, poor people. No, at, at that moment, the only two categories weren't upper deck, lower deck. wasn't rich or poor. It was lost and saved. And so you could go there to find if your loved one was lost at sea or saved. Because in that moment, no other distinctions mattered. Their money, their class, their rank in society was meaningless. All that mattered was lost or saved. And in the church, there are only two distinguishing factors. And it's not good and bad. It's not gives a lot of money or not, doesn't give much. It's not rich or poor. It's lost and saved. And there's no room for classism in the church or at the Lord's table. And there's no place for this division. One of the saddest things, I think, in the American church specifically, uh, in our history and in reality today, is that this hour right here is the most segregated hour of the week. It was but a generation ago that we had legal segregation in this country. And churches in large part were complicit and advocates for it. And Paul's letter to the Corinthians and the gospel itself should have swayed the hearts of Christians to stand up to the culture. We should have been the ones saying, we are all made in the image of God. It's all sinners saved by grace. We all come to this table as equals, as sinners deserving of grace. But the church failed its mission back in the 1960s by doing exactly what the Corinthians are doing here. Segregating people not based on classism and rich and poor, but segregating people based on race. Dr. Uh, Clarence Jordan, a Baptist preacher in Sumter County, Georgia in the early 1960s, said it this way. The thing that breaks my heart is that the Supreme Court is coercing pagans to act more Christian than the Bible is compelling Christians to act like Christians. I can hardly stand it when I see the integration struggle being fought, not in the household of God, but in the buses and the depots and the Woolworth tables. We are arguing about whether or not we can sit down and eat hamburgers and drink Cokes together when we ought to have been sitting around Jesus' table drinking the wine and eating the bread together. The sit-ins never would have been necessary if Christians had been sitting down together in church. When we take the Lord's Supper together, we proclaim a gospel unity that transcends every cultural division that the world could throw at us. We come to the table together. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The second thing we need to see is that the Lord's Supper is a participation. It is a participation with Christ. There is a warning here that as we are participating in the Lord's Supper together, we should not participate in it in an unworthy manner. The idea here is that if we partake or touch or eat these things in an unworthy manner, we are drinking judgment upon ourselves. Because in taking this, we are touching something that is holy with our hands while our heart's posture is one of rejecting it. Paul says in verse 16 of the previous chapter, chapter 10, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
The bread that we break isn't not a participation in the body of Christ. See, the word participation here, it means fellowship. It means that you are mingling with it. Its presence is coming into you. You see, the Lord's Supper is a highly spiritual reality. It is a means of grace where God is doing something special in the hearts of lives in his people. But as we, as, we, as we think about that, we can fall into one of two traps as we think about this kind of spiritual reality in the Lord's Supper. We can overinterpret this thing or we can underinterpret. You see, the Catholics error in this way, they overinterpret, I believe, because they believe that when the priest blesses the, the, the wine and the bread, that it transforms into the actual, literal, physical body and blood of Jesus. They believe that when the priest says, hopus corpus mehum, which is where we get, the historical, where we get our word hocus pocus, hocus corpus, hocus pocus, because the priest magically transforms into the blood and body of Jesus. And that is why when you go to a Catholic church, the, the Lord's table is in the middle, and often the pulpit is to the side, because salvation is found in the supper, not in the word proclaimed. We reject that way. No, we say as Protestants that salvation is by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, through the scriptures alone, and for the glory of God alone. We say faith comes by hearing, according to Romans chapter 10. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ preached. And we say salvation comes through faith in Christ and repentance of sin. We're not saved by eating and drinking. No, we're saved, not saved through religious festivals or religious rituals. We're saved by faith through grace. So salvation is not found in eating the Lord's Supper. But we also have the other problem. And this issue is a particularly Baptist issue that we can run into sometimes. Or if you're a church history snob, it's a Zwinglian issue. That we can overcorrect and say that the Lord's Supper is merely symbolic. It is merely a symbol. Or it is only a physical reminder of a spiritual truth. But I think this is wrong too. If it was only symbolic... Why would we drink judgment onto ourselves by taking a symbol in an unworthy manner? If it was only symbolic, why does Paul say some people are getting sick and some of you have died because you've taken this in an unworthy manner? No, Paul says in the supper we are actually participating or fellowshipping with Jesus himself. That the presence of God is uniquely manifested in this supper in a way that his presence is not manifested elsewhere. His presence is always with us, but it is uniquely positioned in this supper in a way that I don't have necessarily words to explain. But he's there a special way. You know, it's like, kind of like this, I think. Yesterday, uh, I was brushing, I have three daughters, and I was brushing uh, their hair. And I was brushing my youngest hair's hair, Ember. And she's got this beautiful blonde hair. And uh, I was holding her brush in her hair. And, uh, it, you know, this kind of moment comes over me where it's like, Ember, you are just the most beautiful Ember I've ever met. You're my favorite Ember. I just love you so much. I'm just kissing her all over her face. I'm tickling her and holding her tight and, and squeezing her. And she's laughing and, and squeezing her. And, you know, I'll stop and she'll say, do it again, Daddy. Right? And I'll kiss her and tickle her and all these things. And I'll tell her she's so beautiful. Now, in that moment, I wasn't more present than five minutes before that. In that moment, she is still just as much my daughter as five minutes before that. I didn't love her more in that moment than I loved her five minutes before that. But in that moment, she felt my presence. She felt my love. She felt my affection. She felt my joy for her in a way that she doesn't always feel in every other moment. In the Lord's Supper, God's presence is manifest 
differently. His arms feel closer. His love more tender. His promises more true. His delight over you feels real and you feel his warmth. and the sa- You feel like uh, the safety of a child in their father's arms. You see, this moment of the Lord's Supper is not just a proclamation. It's a participation in Christ whereby we get God differently. And let me say this. Sometimes, uh, particularly in Baptist life, uh, you know, we, we'll talk about how we don't want to take the supper every week because it wouldn't feel special. It wouldn't feel special if we did it all the time. But let me challenge that thinking. Because the presence of Jesus is not special when we haven't been around him for a while. We do not need the absence of Jesus in order for our hearts to grow fonder of him. No, we could have the supper every week and it would be just as if not more special with every bite. Because in the supper, it is more than some illustration about the cross. In the supper is Christ himself come to you. It is spiritual. It is mystical. And we don't have the words that explain all of that. But when we take it, we take Christ with it. And we could take it every week and it would be just as special. Look at verse 28. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Last thing is the Lord's Supper requires self-examination. This reminds me of Indiana Jones in the search of the Holy Grail. Because remember when they finally find the Holy Grail, the the bad guy is there and he's got a pick from all of the the cups right there, there. And which one was the cup that Jesus drank from? And he picks the most ornate, most beautiful one, and he gets it wrong, and it's like hand rots, and he, and he dies. To take this meal in an unworthy manner is like that guy. It brings judgment upon you. You see, because God, because the, the presence of Jesus is especially present in this meal, and that means you can bring God's anger or judgment or discipline on you in a special way. And so what does it mean to take this, ma- this meal in an unworthy manner? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that you haven't sinned. All right, let's be clear about that because if, if you had to come to it without sin, none of us ever get to take it. It certainly doesn't mean that you have to come feeling worthy because a lot of times we never feel worthy. And that's why we're taking it in the first place because we're not worthy. Now, in the Greek, we can see that the word unworthy is not an adjective. It's an adverb, which is good news. Because if it was an adjective, it would be describing you that you are unworthy. But instead, he's talking about the way we come, the verb, the way we approach it. Not who we are, but how we come. Not not, not who we are, but how we come. And so from the context, what what does it mean to to come unworthily? Well, first, from the context, it's clear. We don't participate in the Lord's Supper if there are divisions in your heart. If you are harboring unforgiveness or anger in your heart, the Bible is clear that you should first go confess your sin to that person. You should forgive that person or, or, or grant forgiveness. Make things right before you come to the Lord's table. Reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel. And if you are not reconciled with someone else, you've got to get reconciled with them before you come here. Another way you might see this is if you're coming to the Lord's table and your life is marked by classism. You haven't separated yourself off, or you have separated yourself off emotionally or physically from other people, whether it's because they're poor, or because they're a different race, or different class, or something else. If you are divided with a brother or sister in Christ over some secondary issue, if you cannot stand the fact that there are Democrats or Republicans in the church, it is unfathomable to you. 
If it angers you and there's resentment or division in your heart, you should not take the Lord's Supper. You should make it right and then take it. Another way to come to this table unworthy would be to come in a spirit of defiance. If you know that your life is not submitted to Christ as king and you are living in open rebellion against his commands, not just failing him, we all failed him this morning before we got to the church, we have failed him. But if you are living in, in an open, like you are openly choosing, you know what God has said, and you say, you know what, I'm going to live my own way anyway. I know God said don't do this, but I'm going to just, I'm not, I'm not struggling, and I'm just choosing to rebel. And unrepentant, I'm just going to go and do my own way. You should not take the Lord's Supper. You should not celebrate the cross with your mouth and taking the supper and then trample on the cross with your feet by your life. You cannot shout worship him and crucify him at the same time. Do not say thank you Jesus for your death while stubbornly doing the very things that put him on the cross. If you have open, unrepentant, willful sin in your life, deal with that. Repent of that. Put it to death before you come to the Lord's table lest you drink judgment on yourself. And lastly, do not come with the spirit of self-righteousness. You approach the table unworthily when you fail to realize how unworthy you are to partake of this table in the first place. This table is for those who know they're bad. There was an old Scottish pastor who was handing out the Lord's Supper in his church, and uh, there was uh, this one woman who said, Pastor, I can't take it. I'm unworthy. I'm too unworthy. I can't take it. I've failed too often this week. And he looked her in the eye, and he said, Take it, Lassie. It's for sinners. This meal is not for perfect people. It is for sinners. And you all qualify. You have been washed by the blood of Christ. You see, the other way to drink judgment on your head is to, to take this meal when you're not a Christian, when you've not been washed by the blood of Christ. It is for those who belong to Christ. Do not try to take his presence into you when he's not already there. If we approach this table in an unworthy manner, God could discipline us. Because God disciplines those he loves. There's a weight here. Because this meal is more than a symbol, and so we don't take it flippantly. We, we have self-examination first. We think about our life first. And so you need to ask, am I truly a Christian? Am I harboring unforgiveness or anger towards someone? Am I living in defiance against God's law or will? Am I aware of just how sinful and unworthy I am? And then take the meal in humility or go correct the issue and come back. We should take the time to examine ourselves. D.A. Carson, a theologian, tells the story of a pastor who had a church about, honestly, about our size. Uh, but sin was so rampant in this church that he could not even address the sin issues because the leadership was so involved in the sin and the division of the church. And so this pastor prayed for three months that God would change the church or send him somewhere else. Over the next year, he did 34 funerals. 20% of the church died, and the next year they baptized 200 people. God doesn't always bring judgment when we approach this table unworthy, but he certainly can, and he certainly has, and so we should take it seriously. I started, started this morning talking about sports and rivalries and divisions, and um, I went to my first NFL game two years ago uh, at the Bengals, and uh, been to a few games since, but for those three hours that you're there, when things are going well, Something happened that I wasn't expecting. You start high-fiving strangers, hugging strangers, 
Like, whoa, let's go. You're like, like they scored the touchdown, but for some reason I'm high-fiving everybody, right? And everybody's high-fiving everybody. There's just great unity for three hours with strangers and people you've never met. When we come together as a church, and especially when we take the Lord's Supper, it should be marked by an even greater unity. We're black and white, Republican and Democrat, and even Ohio State and Michigan fans. Link arms together at the Lord's table. Because of all of those things that try to divide us, Christ is greater and he unites us as sinners saved by the same grace and make us family.